Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God. He is the king above all gods. His hands, his hand, in his hand, are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm number 95. We're going to talk about worship and warning. The importance of knowing the ways of the Lord. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who created us by glory and virtue. How do you get what you need for your life? Through the knowledge of him. God provides all things, all things, through the knowledge of him. I wonder, there be any greater joy for any person than doing what you were made to do? I think there's a certain kind of contentment and, and satisfaction that comes from any activity that you've been prepared for. You may not be able to express it in words. No other person may notice. But when you know you're doing what you were made to do, all the world just sort of fits together for you. However, there are some people, a lot of people, and the idea of what you were made for doesn't really exist for them. Their idea of what you were made to do is a huge question mark. The reason for that, I believe, because... It is impossible for any person to know the purpose they were fashioned for unless they first know the person that has fashioned them for that purpose. You can't know the what until you know the who. And you know who. That may not make sense to some people, but it's the truth all the same. We are created beings. How can we possibly see ourselves clearly and truthfully without seeing the creator? If you can't really know where you are unless you know where you've come from. And I think that idea explains a whole lot of the confusion in our world today. People have no idea how they got here. Because they will not hear the voice of the Lord and they have hardened their hearts. People have this this cosmological fairy tale. Um... The, you know, it's, it's an accident. The universe is an accident. The universe is just one of those things that happens sometimes. Really? Yeah, that's a fairy tale. Natural situation of every person, every person ever made, is to worship. It is exactly what we were made for. But now, if you were to observe humans in their natural habitat, 
you, you don't really get that impression at all. If you, if you had to give an example of what people were made for by the experience of what we see in the world around us, you'd probably reference something like an episode of Cops. Yeah, pretty depressing. I think it's a good indicator of the lives of what average people look like. It's a little terrifying. Where do we get this idea that people were made for worship? Well, if you look at history, worship of some kind or another is one of the two dominant industries of the world. The other one being warfare. And a good portion of that is pretty much involuntary. People trying to defend themselves. But still, that honestly, that kind of adds to the confusion as worship in, in human history covers everything from human sacrifice to feng shui and everything else in between. To be fair, we come to the idea that people were born to worship God from the Bible, from the Scripture. The Scripture bears testimony every page, book by book, from cover to cover. And a lot of this is by implication or by uh, principle. But there are some key verses that point us in the direction. Isaiah 43, verse 21 says, This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Psalm 22, uh, it says of the Lord, you are wholly enthroned in the praises of Israel. I love that. It's an amazing picture, God being enthroned in praises. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, we love him because he first loved us. And worship is about expressing love to God. Question, why does God want us to worship him? Answer, because it is the very best thing for us. The very best thing. Why do people feel uncomfortable with worship? Because they're not who they're supposed to be. Yet, if the people of this world were devoted from the heart to loving God, cops would be the most boring show in the world. Nobody would watch it. Nothing ever happens except people praying and singing. Worshiping God in the spirit and in truth, folks, it sets in order issues in our lives like, like nothing else can. It allows us to be the people that God intended us to be. And God also wants us to worship him because the alternative, and there is actually an alternative, for us it's worse than anything we can imagine. Some people don't want to worship God. And you know what? They don't have to. They don't have to. God doesn't want anyone to worship him but those that have a sincere desire to do so. People who don't want to worship God don't have to worship him forever. The Psalms are the songbook of the nation Israel. On average, they're about 3,000 years old. They are the testimony to God's people, engaged in worship. They really do paint a great picture of the people of God. About one-third of the Psalms are complaints. They're called laments. God knows who we are. And that really is the point. As we worship God, we learn about who we are. We also learn about he, who he is. And that's the key. Not just theological terms and ideas. We get to know him in the way that he's intended. Worshiping God is like grad school for the servants of God. Whenever you spend time with a person, any person, you learn about them. You find out about them. 
If you can sit down and talk to a person for half an hour, 45, the same thing happens with God. You spend time in prayer. You spend time just worshiping him, talking to him, pouring out your heart to God. You find out about him. You learn. Now, you may not walk away from a prayer feeling like, wow, I've got all these new facts about God in my head. No, you won't. But it's inside. It's intuitive. It works. It's powerful. It's good. This, uh, this particular psalm, Psalm 95, Jewish tradition tells us that this was part of regular worship at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles would be the feast every year when the people gathered around Jerusalem to reenact the wilderness journey by camping out in their front yards or on the rooftop and a little tent or a shed to remember what their people had been through. In fact, the scripture tells us that they were supposed to be able to see the stars or the sky through the roof as they participated in the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering their ancestors that traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land. God wants us to remember. And the psalm is laid out, basically, it's, it's a little more complicated, but basically it's in three movements. First of all, there's an invitation. God invites us to participate in worship, to be with him. In verses 1 and 2, and also in verse 6. Then there's an explanation. God reveals to us the fabric, the, the, the substance of why it is that we need to worship him. In verses 3, 4, 5, and also in verse 7. And then finally, at verse the last part of verse 7, the whole thing just kind of changes gears dramatically and there's an admonition. It's like God gets in our face and tells us what for because we are responsible to him. And that admonition is God's instructions. Verses 8 through 11 are set out as a warning to those whose hearts might just be a little hardened to the Lord. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 was questioned by a lawyer, uh, a lawyer of the day who is an expert in the law of Moses. Matthew twenty two thirty six, this lawyer speaks to Jesus. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says that all the requirements of the law and the prophets are addressed in the person that truly loves God and his neighbor. And you, you can even simplify it a little further than that, one step further, because if the love of God is your guiding principle in life, then love for your neighbor is going to be part of the package. It's going to happen automatically. You really love God, and God's love is guiding your life. You are going to be considerate of every person because God loves these people. First John Chapter 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? Augustine said, love God and do what you will. That's the package. He's really right. It's not that people don't do as they please. They do, one way or another. Unfortunately, people do exactly as they please, Christians included. The problem is, is that people do not love God. Not enough to affect their conduct towards other people in the way that Jesus would have us affected. 
You see, we understand the idea. We hold other people strictly accountable, don't we? It's ourselves, not so much. We like to give ourselves a little more wiggle room than everybody else. So in Psalm 95, God invites us through the psalmist to be intimate to him, to be close to him, to come into his presence, to lay ourselves down, our gripes, our complaints, our failures, our whole lives, to lay them down at his feet and to take our medicine, the wonder drug that we need every single day. Because if we do it right, it will set every other detail in our lives pointing in the right direction. won't finish the job, but it will get things pointed in the right direction. Believe it, it's the truth. The invitation, part one. Psalm 95, verse one. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Let's take just a second and look at these two verses and let's talk about what they're not, what they are not. As I read these two verses, I am not seeing the attitude or the actions of a person that is carrying the burden of requirement. Oh, we got to go worship God again. Not someone that is fulfilling an obligation. Oh, yeah, we got what time? Oh, I got to worship. Oh, man. Uh, they're not obligated. Uh, they're not being compelled. So it's probably not the high schooler that you pulled out of bed this morning. And they're not compelled. Not even someone that is conducting themselves to impress other people or to live up to expectations of others. And that's another good reason it's probably not a high school kid. Not hardly. This is not someone that wanders into the place of worship distracted and concerned with the cares of this world. Those same cares that choke out the fruit that God so desires for our life in Matthew chapter 13. What I believe that we have here is very simple. Natural, normal response of any person who is understanding and clearly perceiving the presence of God revealed in their life. Together with maybe just the least bit of God's goodness and the favor that he has shown us over these many days. God Folks, has been so good to us. Even on the best day, we see only a little tiny bit of that, all that he's done for us. So when you read these two verses, it's a clear, honest perspective. It'll do this to you. It'll change you. This person is aware of almost no one else but the Lord. Especially, especially they're not acutely aware of themselves. How do we know this, you might ask? Notice, please, we start out singing, which is great, but this person is so moved that almost right away they are shouting joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You don't get that from being compelled. You don't get that because you're interested in what people think. Well, unfortunately, there are people that do that in church to attract attention to them. Pray for them. People who want to attract attentions to themselves. Uh, Those that are... Standing in the presence of the Lord need the attention of no other person. It is his attention and his alone that we crave. You know, it's interesting. You, th- you ever think about going to heaven? I mean, occasionally, I, I, probably every day. Um, and, I, and I think, what's it going to look like? What are other people going to look What am I going to say to everybody? I don't think any, I'm going to know that anybody else is there but the Lord. 
I think the Lord is going to fill my attention 110%. So if you want to take my wallet when I'm in heaven, go for it. We start out singing, which is great. But this person in the psalm is so moved that almost right away they're shouting joyfully. Verse 2 says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. We're standing in the presence of the Lord. We're invited into his presence with thanksgiving. If you, if you really think about it, understand this idea. You have to wonder, is there really any other way to come before the presence of the Lord than by thanksgiving? To not be overwhelmed with thanksgiving doesn't, doesn't make sense. Otherwise, you don't really understand who he is. You don't really understand who you are or why you're there. And again, we're invited. Let us shout joyfully to him. But we notice the, the presence of order and structure in what's going on here. We're not just shouting to the Lord from joy. It says, let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. There's structure and order in what's going on. And that's interesting. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, it tells us as we're worshiping as a, as a family of believers, let all things be done decently and in order. Let that be a pattern for our lives. You know, if the scripture prescribes it, we want to do it. But decently in order, in, in some churches, you'll find that um, that's kind of optional. Not for us. Our emotion never overtakes our reason. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You know, it's, the spirit of God doesn't make you get up and do crazy things. It doesn't. You're in control. And we should be. Why are we moved to humble ourselves and to worship with no thought of ourselves? Just, you know, put it out there and, and sincerely from our hearts. And maybe one of the most honest moments of our lives. We have, we have the reason why we do this in verses 3, 4, and 5. A perspective of the Lord, our creator, as so deserving of all this and so much more. The explanation, part 1, in verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. As people, any people, we need desperately to engage ourselves to understanding who God is. And part of reflecting on the... Uh, creation, the world that he's made, the worlds that he's made, the universe, everything is a part of us being connected with. I'm certain, you know, I received the Lord in 1976, first week in July, and I don't think I've ever looked at the sky the same since. Because when I look at the sky, it occurs to me that the colors and the clouds and everything that I'm seeing is something that God set in order up in the sky intentionally for me to look at. God knew I would be where I am and that as I looked at the sky and I'd be thinking about his hand upon my life and his presence in this world. And everywhere we go, everything we see, unfortunately, the created works of man, when you're in the middle of the city, standing on the concrete, looking at the asphalt, staring at some glass building, it's not quite the same, is it? But when we see the creation, there's opportunity. The scripture we quoted at the beginning of the study, 2 Peter 1.3, really sets a tone concerning 
our benefit from understanding the nature of God. Provides all things for life and godliness. Understanding the nature of the Lord has huge implications as a benefit for my life. And and honestly, if for no other reason than having my mind fixed upon the Lord and meditating on the nature, his nature from scripture. And if I have to choose between my mind being consumed with the Lord or having my mind consumed with myself, trust me, it's no contest. It's no party to be thinking about yourself all day long. The more I think about myself, the more depressed I get. And check it out. You can be rich, powerful, smart, good-looking, all of the above. It doesn't matter. There's always some fly in the ointment somewhere. I guarantee you the most beautiful people in the world are standing in front of a mirror right now in their bathrooms going, Oh, no. Oh, bummer. Oh, look at that. Oh, what happened? The most beautiful people in the world. So let me, let me challenge you. When you get up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror, go, how wonderful, and walk away and think about the Lord. Do it. No matter what you have, it's never going to be enough. There is always something you don't have or can't get. And then when you finally get it, it's never as advertised. Is it? Seriously. And when you're like talking about getting married, that's huge. Or, you know, you have a child. People have ideas. Having children is just going to be the most, just fairy tale, you know, with the music in the background, running through the field, you know, and then they have to change a diaper. They're like, what on earth? Something's wrong with my baby. There's a folk tale of Alexander the Great, 33 years old, having conquered the world, and he's weeping because there's no more worlds to conquer. What does the Apostle Paul write? Being confronted with the frustration of being a feeble, hapless human. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans chapter 7. And you know what? He is exactly right. It's not what do I need, but who do I need? There's no plan or practice or strategy that will self-talk me into a reasonable world of human sanity and suburban bliss. There never has been. It, never, it doesn't exist. It's a lie. What I need is to focus my heart and my mind off of myself and on to the person and the nature of God, my creator. And then and only then will I receive the help and the direction that God has intended for me. And it is a discipline. It's not what you always feel like doing. But man, it is the best thing for you. You know, what's interesting in our world. There's a group of people, large group. That reject the Lord completely. And yet they've managed to get their attention off of themselves. They are the crusaders, the altruists. Uh, They crusade for the common good. They're devoted to uh, education, public relief, protecting the environment, feeding the poor, elevating the downtrodden, protecting the world's endangered species, to bring clean water to the third world, to fighting hunger, world peace, etc., etc., fill in the blank. For the most part, nice things, noble purposes. They're they're doing what you and I would consider to be good works. These people have, to some extent, escaped the prison of human frustration, taking their attention off of themselves and attaching it to their noble crusade. They have a huge advantage of being distracted from their own futility and then actually providing some real, albeit very temporary, Benefit to those in need. However, to be honest, it's way too temporary. 
for over the course of even one lifetime, these crusaders will see the futility of a life built on the shifting sand of human reason. Not to mention that in the end, they and all the people that they've helped will be eternally separated from their creator. And that's what you call a deal breaker right there. That's no go. Human satisfaction in life is inextricably connected to the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. The attachment to the person of Christ, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, biologically, any other way, physiologically, etymologically. I mean, whatever I can do to connect myself to Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, great advice. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How do we do that? How do we set our mind on the things above? You know, people, they want God's help with different issues. And, and you'll tell them. They'll say, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to do this. And I said, well, you do what the Lord tells you to do. Okay, good, yeah. How do I find out? It was read the book or just ask. Like, Lord, what do I do? It works. It works. You ask God to tell you what to do, he'll show you what to do. He'll bring somebody, sometimes unbelievers. He'll bring unbelievers over to tell you what to do and give you wisdom. We identify with the scriptures and the testimony of the creator. Look at verse 3, Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and the great king above all gods. Mostly because there are no other gods, real gods. I mean, the Lord is preeminent and without equal, period. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Brooklyn, New York, they would like you to believe that there are other gods with a small g. Mostly because they want Jesus to be one of those gods with a small g. No sale. Sorry. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about these things. And unless you look at what he says clearly, you could be a little confused. 1 Corinthians 8, 5, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing. It doesn't exist in the world. And there is no other god but one. Seize upon that last statement there. That's the key. There may be many things that people call gods or worship as gods. And sure, there are demonic powers out there. And yes, Satan is called the god of this age. He's not a god. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that he's the god of this age. But there is only one god. And don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. As an evidence of the fact, every hour in every place... On this and every other planet, look at verse 4. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Have you ever met anybody who never saw the ocean? What an amazing thing. I, I lived in Idaho for a while. I knew a bunch of kids who had never seen the ocean. Seen on television, seen pictures, obviously. But I thought, wow, to never see the ocean, what a thing. Because, you know, I've seen the ocean a bunch of times. I don't remember how many, but a lot. But every time I go to the ocean, I just look at it. And it's just like, 
amazing. And it's so much larger than I even understand. It's wild. Verses 4 and 5 here being, you know, poetically constructed. This is a worship song. It's not so much his hands, metaphorically his hands brought it into existence, but he spoke it into existence with the word of God. And it is to this day under his control and it operates according to his authority. In all these things, there is an order and a structure that's way beyond anything we can understand. God is separate from his creation and still he's undeniably present in all these things. His presence is evident in the creation. And at this point, the psalmist repeats the first two movements of the song. But it's interesting because as he repeats these first two movements, they get a little bit more personal in the way that he mentions them. So the invitation part two in verse six. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Notice, he's no longer spontaneously singing and shouting to the Lord, but it's, he's, he's going to bow down. He's going to worship. He's going to humble himself before the Lord. We're all familiar with the idea of bowing down or kneeling in prayer. The scripture, it's interesting, it doesn't happen as often as scripture as you might think. Look at the prayers of scripture and look for prayers that specifically note where those who are praying get on their knees or humble themselves physically. It doesn't happen all as often as you might think. Although the words for worship, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both of those words in Greek and Hebrew, both specifically relate to the idea of prostrating yourself before God. That's why often you read in the Gospels and it says, and they worshiped Jesus, but the idea it's communicating is whoever is speaking to him is really laying on their face in that situation. That's the idea. To kneel or bow before the Lord indicates a humility and a reverence to the Lord, a recognition of who he is, and and more importantly, who he is to us. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So as the psalm starts off in rejoicing and celebration, it starts to focus in a little bit tighter uh, in uh, in its focus, our place with the Lord. And this is how we worship our creator. And then we have the why. Why do we worship the creator? In verse 7, the explanation, part 2. And this, again, gets a little bit more personal. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is our God. We belonged to him, and vice versa. You belong to God. Which, if you think about it, people who have rejected the Lord, what what a scary thing to be the personal property of God the Creator and to reject that truth puts you in a very, very dangerous position. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And even though, you know, we have been spoon-fed this idea of liberty and self-determination, I'm in charge of my life, you're not the boss of me, nobody tells me what to do, from the time, from very early on, from the time we were very small, You today, and not only you, but all the unbelievers of the world, are all under the protection of spiritual forces that are much greater than we actually are able to understand. You do not belong to yourself. 
You do not. Someday soon, this is going to become obvious to every human who's ever lived. He says, and we are the people of his pasture, just as surely as if we were sheep. We are the people of his pasture. Hey, do you think sheep know that they belong to people? Are they smarter than we are? Do they understand that somebody owns them? Do you think, you know, sheep, one sheep talking to another? Hey, who is that guy with the dog? He's really bugging me today. Um, this is God's plan for us, folks. This is his desire for us. Some people get it, but most people won't. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What is that? What do you think the sheep of his hand means? There's a kind of closeness and an intimacy with the Lord here. His sheep, the sheep of his hand, maybe the sheep that he feeds from his hand, or all of those things. In the first six and a half verses of this psalm, we have the picture of a joyful and an intimate connection between God and his people. Amazing blessing, amazing privilege. But I want you to remember something, okay? With privilege comes responsibility, always. That's the way it works. Your father is a good parent. He never gives without the expectation that we would use what he has given. And so, for all that the Lord has given us, more than we know, the Lord holds us to account for what we have received. Luke twelve forty eight says, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And so... In the last half of verse 7 through the end of verse 11, we have an admonition to admonish somebody. Like the first time your daughter's going out to a football game with some guy you never met before, how you set them both down in the living room and you encourage them, you admonish them. This guy guy up here with two daughters, he's got a big smile. Look at the last, last part of verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts And they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now this is a a crazy shift from the first six verses of the psalm. This is a powerful reminder that the stakes are much larger than we understand. And the Lord is as serious as a heart attack. You think of all the Jews celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles... They're all camped out with their kids in the front yard, having a good old time, just worshiping the Lord there. And God always has a larger purpose, folks. There's a teaching moment here. We remember God bringing the nation out of Egypt. He wants us to remember the lives of those people and those especially that rebelled and fell in the wilderness. And why? What happened to them? Why does it not going to happen to us? You know, we don't celebrate to celebrate. We don't. As believers in Christ, we have a purpose. 
We don't have Thanksgiving to eat turkey. Really. I'm serious. There's a larger purpose. We don't, we don't remember Easter for bunnies and eggs and candy. And missing the purpose with these issues. One of the many things indicating that our hearts are beginning to harden to the truth. And there are things the Lord wanted the Jewish people to remember as they celebrated remembering the coming out of Egypt. There's some interesting rules in reading the scripture for understanding the Old Testament. But just one particular one I want to share with you this morning. And uh, rules of understanding the Bible are called hermeneutics. So if you want to remember that word, you know, it's useful sometime. Maybe if you talk to somebody from the seminary and they want to confuse you, you can hang in there with them. Um, The truth is that God concealed in the Old Testament the facts that are revealed in the New Testament. Okay? And what God revealed in the New Testament is all concealed in the Old Testament. It's all there. It just doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. It's not that compliment. You want to know what the Old Testament is about? Read the New Testament and refer back. Romans 15, 4 says, Whatever things were written before, meaning the Old Testament, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. When you find Old Testament Scriptures quoted in the New Testament, it gives important insight into God's purpose. Which brings us back to Psalm 95. Verses 7 through 11, the the very last section of Psalm 95, the admonition. And why am I telling you all this? Because these verses, folks, show up more prominently in the New Testament than many, many, many others. They are all over the place. Actually, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 are basically a commentary with exposition on how these verses not only apply to the Jews of but the Jews of the first century and also our lives today very clearly and in multiple other places. Hebrews 3.13 Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if, big if there, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the provocation. Notice the last part of verse 7 there. Today, that same today, if you will hear his voice. Notice that, that will part. It's an act of choice. Hearing the Lord's voice is not a thing that people have to do. You may have noticed that looking at the world around you. Someday they will. Someday they will have to hear his voice. But that's going to be different. Even for believers, it is an act of the will. I have to choose to hear the voice of the Lord. Because his voice is here. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Lord is talking to the church about their failure, basically about being messed up and the fact that they're contrary to the gospel in their lives. What does he tell them? Ephesians 4.20, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You know, folks, when people receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, it's because they have heard Jesus. They have heard him. He spoke to them. 
It's not because you were really smart and you convinced them or because they saw, you know, some movie and it just moved them with concern. They were afraid about going to hell. People sincerely commit their lives to Christ because they have heard his voice. Nobody else. It's the revelation of God Almighty. He opens up your brain and shows himself to you and you recognize the truth. And that is powerful. It is the most powerful thing in this world or any other. One of the things that we have to do to hear the Lord, and the scripture makes this plain, we have to turn away from the things of the world that also can be difficult. It's not what you want to do. Sin is fun, but it's painful and it's expensive. You know, It's very expensive, more expensive than we know. But it is the best thing for us to turn away from the things of the world. Listen to Psalm 119.37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Wow. Do we need to pray that? Turn away my eyes from worthless things and revive me in your way. Do you know if you ask God to do that, he will listen to you? He will help you? One of the very first things you're ever going to hear if a person who receives Christ at this church There may be influences in your life that you need to dump. Because if you don't do it, you're treading on very thin ice. And for people who have been believers for some time, it's even more serious. Listen to what the Lord says in Psalm number 4, verse 2. How long, O sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? As a believer, you see, whatever I involve myself in, I'm dragging Jesus into it. I am the body of Christ. And if I I won't listen to the Lord, the only option I have is to harden my heart. And that is not a good idea. Again, in the commentary from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And this whole idea of faith in the children of Israel, what it implicates there is that when people heard the word of God, they then began to act upon it and do what it said, necessary. You can hear the word of God all day long. And if you never do anything, the only thing it does is make you more accountable to God. It does not make you any less under his judgment. So the children of Israel did not believe. Again, Psalm 95 verse 9. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. These people tested and tried, they frustrated the Lord. They grieved him for 40 years, even though they saw his work. So the Lord, again, brings us back to the exodus of Israel. They saw the miracles. They saw 10 plagues that destroyed and decimated Egypt from which they were all protected. 
Every one of them were protected in the land of Goshen. They escaped the Egyptians through the Red Sea. Maybe they didn't notice that. You know, they went through the end. What did they do? Whenever hardship or difficulty came upon them in the wilderness, when things got very difficult, they were having a hard time, what was their knee-jerk response? I knew it. I knew it. God bailed on us. He just brought us out here to kill us. I knew it all along. No. Listen to the things they said to Moses. Exodus 14, 11. What? Because there were no graves in Egypt? You've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us out of Egypt? Exodus 17. The people thirsted for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And listen, the way people's minds worked, it's scary. Listen to how they remembered Egypt. Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. Or I'm sorry, Numbers 16, 13. Is it a small thing that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness? Oh my gosh. Actually kind of reminds me of the way some believers fondly remember the world. Have you ever gone to a church where the stock and trade is testimony? Where I mean the whole thing is they have a service, people come up in front, tell you how bad they were in the world and how they glorify their disgusting lifestyle? Yeah, I was, I was bad. You think you were bad? I was much worse. I was worse than any of you guys. You know, and they go on and on. And it, it remind, when I was in high school, I was in the 10th grade, they had these uh, former drug addicts come into my health class to tell us about the evils of drugs. And there was some disconnect there because either these people didn't understand the way a high school person's mind works or something, because as soon as they were done, I thought, wow, that was so cool. Those guys were cool, man. Just out there getting high and doing this and that. And total opposite of the effect that they intended. Made the disgusting, debauched, depraved situation of the world look appeal- like sort of, sort of like television. The way it makes sickness and disgusting things look shiny and beautiful and appealing, you know? Scary. The other thing, of course, that we share in common with the children of Israel is, I mean, you talk to Christians, people that God has done miracles in their lives. God changed them. They've seen other people get saved. They've seen people get healed. They've seen lives changed. And then something goes haywire. You have a family problem, accident, you get sick. Lose your job. That's it. I knew it. God's done with me. It's over. God's, God's done with me. It's, you know, just, just like the children of Israel. This is what people do. Even though they saw my work. Forty years and they didn't get it. Verse 10, 40 years I was grieved to that generation. They said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. We don't know the ways of God because our life is just a bowl of cherries, folks. You know that. It is actually the fact that he's revealed through the hardship and difficulties that makes it much more powerful. Terrible things happen to us as believers. You can lose your house, lose your loved ones, your spouse. You can struggle with depression. You have terrible health issues. And let me tell you, if you have health issues, you get diagnosed with cancer, you're going to have financial problems too. Right away. But it is so important to the Lord that we know who he is. 
that we identify, even though we live in the middle of this crazy conflict, we live in this blender, God is there, he's constant, he loves us, even though we make mistakes. You guys are most likely sinners like I am, and yet God doesn't bail on me. He continues to be faithful to me and to help me. It is so important to him that we know who he is. One of the reasons I'm really excited about the women's study this year, they're going through the ladies are learning the attributes of God. And not just information, but to show how each one of these qualities of God connects us to him in a, in a very practical way. Each one is a part of what makes us truly his. And if we don't hear his voice, the hardship of this world is going to drag us down and our hearts become hard what, what does Jesus say in Matthew twenty four twelve? Because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And how will the absence of love show up in people? What do we say from First John chapter four? Someone says, "I love God and hates his brother." He's a liar. So in verse eleven, the Lord says, "So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." You can't confuse this. If you read Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, the rest that God has promised us is Jesus. You're a believer in Christ. You have entered God's rest. It is your, Jesus is your Sabbath day, plainly and clearly, right there in the Hebrews. This world doesn't know the Lord, doesn't know who he is. It's pretty plain. But my concern for us is that as we draw near the finish line here, there may be people that identify themselves with the church that don't hear the voice of the Lord. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus asks a question. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? Good question, don't you think? The world is changing really quickly. And I'm, I'm, I watch you know, the things that I can see. I don't, I'm not sure what exactly what's going on. Most of the time. All I do know is Russ never sleeps and the devil is very, very busy. Romans 13, 11 says, Knowing the time that it is now high time for us to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. God has invited us into his presence. He's invited us to worship him. He has made plain and clear the reasoning behind that invitation, why it is important for us to worship him. And then he admonishes us to be accountable and responsible for all that he's provided, that we would truly hear his voice. I want to read the beginning of Hebrews chapter, or rather, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to think about how these words that the Lord spoke forth through the Apostle Paul, really relate to this idea of us being accountable to him in what we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. 
And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2 says, For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the is the day of salvation. Worshiping the Lord may be one of the greatest privileges we have, folks. And especially as we gather with our families, even with unbelievers and people who don't know the Lord, a great, amazing opportunity for our lives to speak to people about what we believe. We pray for open doors. God, open a door for us to be able to share the truth. But in the absence of that, you know, was it... Um, St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Let your life speak to people. Be that, that expression of Jesus' love. In the gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus sitting at, at the well with the Samaritan woman, one of my favorite conversations in scripture, Jesus speaking to her, And he says an amazing thing. You don't think of yourself very often as the focal point of God's attention. I mean, maybe some people do. (laughs) But most of us don't. We think God's, he's got his attention on everybody else and we're just kind of falling through the cracks somewhere in there. It's not true. In the Gospel of John chapter 4, verse 23, it says, The hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God help us to be those people. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today, Lord, for your word. That, Lord, just shines a light of truth upon who we are. And, Father, our needs... You know, Lord, the issues before us. and Most of us, Father, are looking at a very busy week this coming week. And we pray for your spirit to intervene and to provide wisdom for how things work. Lord, that as we stop and ask for your help, Lord, let your spirit speak and direct us and guide us and encourage our hearts, Lord, that we would be confident, Lord, that we would remember who you are. Father, you are the God of all grace. And Father, you've already done so many wonderful things for us. Help us, Lord, to rest in that confidence. 
and to draw near to you. As we're praying together and every head is bowed, if there's anyone here today, even watching over the internet or in the fellowship hall, anyone that doesn't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and the Lord's spoken to you today and you have a desire to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to be a Christian, I'd like to ask you to take an opportunity as I pray this prayer to repeat the prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life in Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.